please be seated. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, we'll read and look at the whole chapter this morning. Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired Word? The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, Disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls, all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. For they have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work, arise, and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land, 
They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is indeed precious to us. It is more precious than silver or gold. It is sweeter to us than honey. And we ask our Father that you might grant to us now hearts of faith, that fertile soil in which your word might fall and produce much fruit to your glory. Give us eyes to see, our Father, the wisdom of God at work in the calling of Jeremiah. Give us eyes to see, our Father, the good news of Jesus Christ in the calling of Jeremiah. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, this morning we begin a new series through the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of four men, including Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, who've historically been called major prophets. Now, they're called major prophets, not because they're any more important than the other prophets, but because their writings are much longer than the other prophets. Indeed, the book of Jeremiah is the second longest book in the whole of the Old Testament. Only the Psalter exceeds it in length. Jeremiah received its title after the prophet whose ministry it records. As we learn in chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3, Jeremiah was born from the Levitical line of priests, but was called by God to serve as a prophet during the last 40 years of Judah's history in the Promised Land, just prior to and including the Babylonian captivity. He prophesied from the last year of the reign of King Josiah, which was 627 B.C., to just beyond the reign of King Zedekiah in 587 B.C. With the power struggle that was happening at the time between Assyria to the north, Egypt uh, to the west, and Babylon to the east, with Judah being geographically right in the center of it all, it was one of the most tumultuous times in Judah's long history. Jeremiah's main message is this, the Lord God is the sovereign ruler over His creation, preserving and governing Israel, Judah, and all the nations to accomplish the redemption of the elect through the sending of His Messiah, whom He calls in chapter 23 and verse 5, the righteous branch. Jeremiah also, of course, gets into the establishment of a new administration of the covenant that will come through him, through that righteous branch, through the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Lord teaches Jeremiah in chapter 1 and verses 9 through 10, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. It is the Lord, it is the Lord God rather than the creature who is the one who plucks up and breaks down. He alone is the one who destroys and overthrows. He is the one who ultimately builds and plants in His creation. The attempt to thwart His sovereign will is the height of folly 
All creatures serve Him. All creatures serve Him, whether willingly in the case of Josiah and Jeremiah or unwillingly in the case of Nebuchadnezzar and Zedekiah. Jeremiah's prophecy is unique in that it contains more autobiographical information than any other prophetic book in the Old Testament. And so we not only get a glimpse into this man's prophecies, but into the man himself. And as we'll see, in God's good providence, Jeremiah's life really becomes a kind of microcosm of the experience of the faithful remnant in Judah, which is why he's traditionally been called the weeping prophet. It was a difficult time in Judah for the faithful remnant as they looked around them and they saw perversion. They saw corruption from the greatest in the land to the least in the land. There was corruption. There was idolatry. There was the worship of pagan gods. Indeed, what Jesus said about the prophet's reward in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 11 through 12 is proven true in the case of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jeremiah suffered much persecution from the wicked in the land, that majority in the land, including members of his own family in his own hometown during his lifetime. Jeremiah was a prototypical suffering servant. And in this way, his ministry serves to typify that of the Lord Jesus Christ, who became, of course, the ultimate suffering servant for us. Really, we could think about Jeremiah's prophecy as one extended suffering servant song. Jeremiah's prophecy is difficult to outline because it's not strictly ordered by chronology. It's not always in chronological order. Nonetheless, it can be divided, I think, into three main sections with an additional prologue at the beginning and epilogue at the very end. The prologue, of course, is found in chapter 1, which covers the prophet's call. Chapters 2 through 20 then cover the time from Josiah to the first year of the reign of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And then chapters 21 through 45 cover the time from Josiah's successors all the way up to the captivity. Chapters 46 through 51 are oracles concerning the nations. And then finally, we reach the epilogue in chapter 52, which fills in extra details about the fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. This morning, we'll begin with the prologue in Jeremiah chapter 1. And in this text, we'll see the Lord calling Jeremiah to serve as a prophet to the nations. And we'll divide our text into three sections. The first, verses 1 through 3, where we see an introduction. The second, verses 4 through 10, where we see the call itself. And then the third, verses 11 through 19, where we see two visions confirming the call. So we have an introduction, the call itself, and then two visions which serve to confirm the Lord's call upon Jeremiah's life. Look at verses 1 through 3 again where we see an introduction. Look again at verse 1. The text says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests, 
who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Like other prophecies, Jeremiah begins with an introduction, identifying the prophet and the time in which he delivered his prophecy. The prophet's name is Jeremiah, which means the Lord exalts. The Lord exalts. Now this is, you can see this as a major theme of the the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not exalted by any creature, but he is always put down by the creature's Around him. He is eventually imprisoned. He's under threat of death by the creatures around him because of the word he preaches, the word he prophesies. But nonetheless, the Lord exalts him. The Lord exalts him. Jeremiah was the son of Hilkiah, a man who served as a priest in the city of Anathoth, which was in the land of Benjamin. Of course, Benjamin was the land from which the first king of Israel came, King Saul. He was a Benjamite or Benjaminite. The city of Jerusalem, which was in the land of Judah, sat just along the border between Judah and Benjamin. And Anathoth was the city just on the other side of that border. It was about three miles northwest of Jerusalem. He was very close. He was very close to the cultural center of Judah. In Joshua chapter 21 and verse 18, after the conquest of the promised land, we read that Anathoth was set apart as a Levitical city because the priests of Israel, of course, had uh, service to the Lord God himself as their inheritance. He himself, in that sense, was their inheritance. They received no large allotments of land for themselves during the time of the conquest. Instead, they were given portions of various cities that were scattered throughout the land of Israel, and Anathoth was one of those cities. Anathoth was a very important priestly city in Israel's history. After the death of King David, the high priest who served David, a man named Abiathar, backed, if you recall, Adonijah over Solomon to be David's successor. And so when Solomon was installed as king, Abiathar fled to Anathoth, where he remained in exile for the rest of his life. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 2. Now, while there's no direct familial connection recorded in Scripture between Abiathar and Jeremiah, and we have no reason to think that there would have been any such connection, it's nonetheless interesting that God would raise up a man from among the priests like the exiled Abiathar, from the land of Benjamin, from King Saul's tribe, to prophesy against the sins of the Davidic dynasty and to predict the destruction of the Solomonic temple and the end of the long-standing Davidic dynasty in Judah. There may be a touch of divine irony at play at this point. So Jeremiah was from the priestly line. He was called by God to serve as a prophet, and there's no evidence that he ever served as a priest. And so we read in verse 2, to whom the Lord, or pardon me, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. So what does it mean, what does it mean to be a prophet, 
to be a prophet. Well, to be a prophet is to receive and then deliver the inspired word of God to God's people. This is what Jeremiah, this was Jeremiah's calling. This was Jeremiah's vocation. But we not only see Jeremiah's vocation in the text before us, we also see the time that he first took it up. The text says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. King Josiah, of course, was the grandson of the worst of all the Davidic kings, King Manasseh. By the time Josiah became king at the ripe old age of eight years old, can you believe that? An eight-year-old became king of Judah. But by that time, Judah was in severe decline, both politically and spiritually. Politically, at that time, Judah was a vassal state of the powerful Assyria to the north. The Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel just a few decades before Josiah's coronation. They were the dominant power in the region. But in the 13th year of Josiah's reign, Assyria's king died, which gave Josiah the opportunity to remove remove from Judah the yoke of Assyria. Spiritually, Judah was involved in open idolatry. And this, of course, was the legacy of Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh. In fact, the idolatry was so severe that the Torah itself, the Torah itself, the covenant document that established Judah as a people that regulated, was supposed to regulate all of their worship, the Torah itself had to be rediscovered. That happened, of course, during Josiah's reign, and he immediately instituted spiritual reforms to purify the worship of the church. And so, Jeremiah's prophetic ministry begins at a time of severe spiritual decline in Judah, severe political decline in Judah, in which the young King Josiah seeks to implement what will ultimately prove to be unsuccessful reforms In the land. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So it's important to recognize here the word of God, the word of the Lord, did not come to Jeremiah all at once. But it came over the course of 40 years, including the reign of Jehoiakim and concluding in the 11th year of King Zedekiah with the capture of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And so Jeremiah prophesied during one of the most tumultuous times in the history of Judah and the Davidic dynasty, right up until the end of the dynasty in the land, something that the Davidic kings didn't believe could even happen because of the promise God had made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the historical context of Jeremiah's prophecy. But what about its redemptive historical context? What's the Lord doing through these events and the prophecy He sends to accompany and interpret those events? 
Well, in order to understand that, we have to go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, to that final message the prophet Moses proclaimed to God's people on the plains of Moab just before they crossed the Jordan River to enter the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord God commanded Moses to assemble the congregation at Mounts Gerizim and Ebal. And there the Lord, through Moses, had half the elders of the twelve tribes stand on Mount Gerizim and half on Mount Ebal. Then he recited the covenant blessings for obedience. And the men standing on Mount Gerizim responded, Amen. Next, he recited the covenant curses for disobedience. And the men standing on Mount Ebal just across the valley responded, Amen. And then finally, Moses spoke to the congregation saying this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. That's what we see coming to pass in the days of Jeremiah. What happened to Adam in the garden is now, in a sense, not in the same way, but in a sense, happening to Israel in the land. They're being expelled from the land because of their sin, because of their idolatry. But there is hope. As we'll see in the course of Jeremiah's prophecy, the Lord will one day gather His people back to Himself through the work of His Messiah and the renewal of the covenant of grace in Him. That moves us into the second section, verses 4 through 10, where we see the call itself. Look at verses 4 through 5. The text says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. As we make our way into Jeremiah's call, we move from the third person, he, likely written in the inspiration of the Spirit by Jeremiah's secretary, Baruch. We move from the third person, he, to the first person, I. Jeremiah is now speaking to us directly about the moment when the Lord first spoke to him and commissioned him as a prophet. The first word God speaks to Jeremiah in this moment is extremely important. When you consider, in hindsight, 
what the Lord's actually calling Jeremiah to do. You know, I was thinking recently about the call here. Receiving a ministerial call to Grace OPC. And I was tempted to think, now that's a really good call. And I don't mean this in the wrong way. It is a good call. But what I mean is, I was tempted to think that's a good call compared to other calls that aren't as good that are sometimes called hard calls. And I understand what that means. But you know, there's really no such thing as a good call or a bad call from God. If God calls you to a particular work, to a particular service, whether it's a ministerial service or or whatever, a, a secular service in the world, whatever it is, whatever He calls you to, It's a good call because it's from Him. It's from Him. Judging with natural eyes, Jeremiah is receiving a horrible call. I mean, if you would have set out the job description before many men and said, here's here's what's expected of you. Here's what's going to happen to you. And said, line up for the call. There would have been no MIFs coming in for this call. None. God is essentially calling Jeremiah to lay down his life. He's going to give up everything, even his family. Everything. But really, he's giving up nothing because the Lord's with him. The Lord's with him. And we see that in the way the Lord begins His call to Jeremiah. Notice what He says. The first words God speaks to Jeremiah are words of consolation. Words of comfort. Words that are intended to take His heart, His mind, His soul out of this world for a brief moment to realize there's something bigger far bigger than me and my little life on this earth. And of course, that's God and His decree, His purposes. Much like when Jesus appeared to His disciples in the upper room after His resurrection. Remember, the disciples are despondent. They don't know what to think. The one we put our trust in is dead? What is going on here? And Jesus appears to them, and the first thing he says is, fear not. Fear not. And so, essentially, that's what the Lord is saying to Jeremiah at the beginning of his call. Fear not, Jeremiah. Even before I formed you in the womb... I knew you. Now, what the Lord doesn't mean is that he was merely aware of Jeremiah. That wouldn't necessarily serve to comfort Jeremiah. 
In that sense, God knows everyone. God's aware of everything. When God says He knew Jeremiah before He formed him in the womb, He's talking about His foreknowledge. We read about this foreknowledge in connection with predestination. In Romans chapter 8 and verses 28 through 29, the text says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, there it is, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Sometimes we only want to think about that conformity in terms of glory. And it's true that God does conform us to the image of His Son in terms of His exaltation and glory. He's done that to us in our spiritual resurrection from the dead, which is regeneration, the effectual call. And He will do that on the last day as He raises us up bodily to be with Christ forever. But there's another sense in which He conforms us to the image of His Son. And He does that by giving us the privilege of suffering with Him in this life. Giving us the privilege of of experiencing what it means to be humbled, before the presence of God as a creature. We see the same foreknowledge connected to God's purpose of election later in chapter 11 in verses 1 through 2 of Romans. The text says, I say then, or pardon me, I ask then, has God rejected His people? Paul says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Paul isn't saying, of course, that God is simply aware of these people. If that were the case, He'd be aware of all of them. There could be no distinction. What he's saying is that they they were His. In other words, God had already determined to set His salvific love upon them. And that's what He means when He tells Jeremiah that before He formed him in the womb, He knew him. He knew him. He had claimed him as His own. And the same is true for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have trusted Christ for your salvation, beloved, it is because God knew you before you were born from eternity and determined to set His affection upon you. Before you were born, before you had done anything, either good or evil, God set His saving love upon you by choosing you as His own. Your salvation is a gift of His grace from first to last. Well, that should be a great comfort, and I pray it's a great comfort to your soul. I don't know what your experience in life has been in this world, but it's pretty hectic. It's pretty chaotic, isn't it? It's full of ups and downs, and a lot of those ups and downs are the result of your own sin. And how heartbreaking it can be when you sin against those you love so much. 
But don't forget, your salvation is not ultimately about you. It's about the Lord God who set His affection upon you. The one who's made you a trophy of His grace. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3 of God's Eternal Decree in section 8 says this, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation, which is another way of saying effectual calling, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and here it is, an abundant consolation or comfort to all that sincerely obey the gospel. I pray that the knowledge that God knew you before you were born and set His saving love upon you as a comfort to your soul. But the Lord not only foreknew Jeremiah, He also set him apart. He goes further than that. He set him apart and appointed him to be a prophet. He set him apart unto Himself. He consecrated him to Himself. He appointed him with reference to the world to go and, and to be a prophet. And all before he was ever born. It's very similar to what the Apostle Paul says about his own calling, his own vocation. As an apostle in chapter 1 and verse 15 of Galatians, he says that God set him apart before he was born and called him by his grace. As we make our way through Jeremiah's prophecy, I pray that you see images of Paul all through it. Paul, you can see he's reflecting upon Jeremiah quite often in his writings. He says, God set him apart before he was born and called him by his grace. Beloved, God determined the days of your life before you were ever born. He's the one who grants you his graces and his gifts. He's the one who in his good providence ordains your steps. And what he now says about Jeremiah, he will later say to his covenant people in redemptive history, in what is perhaps the most quoted passage from the book of Jeremiah today. So even in Jeremiah's lifetime, he said this about his people. You know which passage I'm talking about. Jeremiah, you've probably, you may have something that has it written on it in your house. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God knows you. Beloved. He knows the plans He has for you. You may not know the plans He has for you. You may not know the plans you have for you. But God knows the plans He has for you. And He has revealed in His Word what He expects from you. Namely, to walk humbly before Him by faith in Jesus Christ. And as you obey the Lord's revealed will, you can be assured that He is with you and that He's working all things for your good. Notice also here that God tells Jeremiah that He will be a prophet, not just to Judah, not just to my people, 
but to the nations. To the nations. This goes back to one of the main themes of the book, which is God's work to pluck up and to plant, to tear down and to build. Jeremiah not only prophesies about the destruction and restoration of Israel and Judah, but he also prophesies about the rise and fall of the pagan nations around him, thus demonstrating that God is ultimately in control of all of it. He is the one true and living God. Look at verse 6. The text says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Immediately, Jeremiah knows the Lord God is speaking to him. It's interesting. He doesn't have a crisis. Is this really God? He, he just knows. He knows in his bones. This is God speaking to me. But he feels inadequate for his call. Jeremiah is still quite young and doesn't believe he knows how to speak to others in a persuasive manner. We see a similar reaction from Moses, if you remember, at Mount Sinai. And I think that's part of the point here, beloved. There's a kind of bookending that's happening. Whereas Moses stands at the beginning of Israel's life in the land under the old covenant, Jeremiah stands at its end, near its end, in which Moses' prophecy from Deuteronomy chapter 28 reaches its fulfillment. Jeremiah is much like Moses, but rather than leading an exodus from a foreign land into the promised land, Jeremiah leads by way of his prophecy an expulsion from the promised land into a foreign land. And look at verse 7. The text says, But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. The Lord assures Jeremiah that he will be okay. What difference does it make whether Jeremiah is young or old, eloquent or ineloquent? The Lord will send him to whomever he should speak, and he will command him whatever he should speak. But Jeremiah's hesitation isn't really a matter of youth or ability. It's really, like Moses, a matter of fear. And the Lord knows it, just as we see one of the major themes of John's gospel, the Lord Jesus, when he sees a person, he sees all the way to the bottom of that person. He sees everything. So the Lord God, as he just announced to Jeremiah, knew you before you were born. He now demonstrates he knows Jeremiah thoroughly. Look what he says in verse 8. This is what is really Jeremiah's concern. Do not be afraid. See, he's afraid. He's fearful. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. As we'll see later in Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah suffers greatly at the hands of God's own covenant people simply because he prophesies the truth about their sin, about their idolatry. But the Lord assures him that he need not fear because the Lord is with him to deliver him. 
This is much like what the Apostle Paul experienced in his public ministry. You remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10? Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is, this is why Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is what the Lord is trying to teach Jeremiah. Don't fear the one who can only kill the body, but fear the one who can throw, throw both body and soul into hell. In other words, fear me. Trust me. Trust me. Worship, worship me, he's telling Jeremiah. I am with you. I am with you to deliver you. This is uh, something that was very helpful for me. Uh, my wife told me on the way over here, on the, you, know, how, you know how Facebook pulls up memories? Um, it was 10 years ago, almost to the day, that I had an asthma attack and almost died. Like I really, I almost expired quite literally. And... I remember the ambulance ride to the hospital, not being able to breathe and thinking, I'm going to die. And the, 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 the woman in the ambulance with me said, I'm not a Christian, or I'm not saved, is what she, the way she put it. I'm not saved, but I understand you're a minister, and I won't be offended if you pray. And my first thoughts were, there's no way I'm going to say anything out loud. I can barely get a breath. But then I thought, you know, I haven't prayed it had been about 45 minutes since the asthma, or not quite, 30 minutes, 35 minutes since the asthma attack started. And I hadn't yet called out to God. And he used these, this unsaved, I don't know, I don't know the condition of her heart. According to her testimony, she was unsaved. He used this unsaved woman to remind me I need to call out to him. And I did. And he brought to mind Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me, with me. That's it. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. If he is with me, no matter what's happening in the moment, it's ultimately okay. It's okay. And my thoughts went from, oh no, I'm panicking because I'm going to die, to Oh, I should have gotten that life insurance policy that I didn't get. <laughs> and then very quickly to, it's okay, this will be the best Sabbath day I've ever had. And then I thought, well, what about Andrea and the children? And the Lord reminded me, I will take care of them. You know, I'm with them too. That's what we see in this text, when the Lord tells Jeremiah, I'm with you to deliver you. Verses 9 through 10, look at the text again. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, or pardon me, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And so the Lord's the Lord's touching here of Jeremiah's mouth for the, is for the purpose of setting his mouth apart and filling it with his own words. 
We see the same basic idea, if you remember, at the beginning of Ezekiel's prophecy, in which he was instructed to eat a scroll from the Lord, that he might speak forth the words of the Lord. It's through this this word. It's through the word that Jeremiah speaks. It's not through the, the, the muscles on Jeremiah's arms. It's not through the skill in Jeremiah's hands. It's through the words that Jeremiah speaks, which are the word of God, that God sets Jeremiah over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The prophecy that Jeremiah delivers is effective to accomplish its purpose simply because it is the Word of God, period. Moving on now to verses 11 through 19, the final section, we see two visions confirming the call. And fear not, I understand what time it is. We'll get through these quickly. Verses 11 through 12, look at verses 11 through 12. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. So the Lord in his kindness, in his grace, further assures Jeremiah through two visions. The first has to do with the nature of all prophecy. It's a vision of an almond branch. In Hebrew, the word that's translated almond sounds like the word that's translated watching. They have the same sound. And so the Lord explains that He is watching over His Word to perform it. In other words, what God is saying to Jeremiah is His Word is effective to accomplish its purpose. It cannot fail. And so Jeremiah need never fear. If if he is speaking forth God's Word, he need never fear it won't come to pass. He can be absolutely confident it will come to pass. Even if it takes 40 years for it to come to pass. Verses 13 through 19. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come. And everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gate of Jerusalem against all its walls and all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. But you, Dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. 
Now, the second vision has to do with the special content of Jeremiah's particular prophecy. It's a vision of a boiling pot of food facing away from the north. In other words, it's been spilled out to the south. This is an image of the disaster that the Lord is about to let loose against His people through the Babylonians. The Lord will bring the covenant curses down upon His rebellious people just as He threatened them in Deuteronomy chapter 28. But even as the fortified city of Jerusalem is surrounded by other kings who set up their thrones at its gates, And even as it's overrun and ransacked, and even as Solomon's temple is destroyed, the Lord tells Jeremiah that He will make him a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the promised land against the Davidic kings, their officials, their priests, and all the people. The Lord, remember what Jeremiah's name means? The Lord will exalt him. The Lord will build him up. The Lord is simultaneously warning Jeremiah not to be afraid, not to be afraid, not to be dismayed, before his enemies, even as he promises to be with him to protect and to deliver him. And in this, we see a picture, in all of this, we see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah, a single man, who by the time it's over with is old and decrepit, It seems like the the natural process of aging is making him less and less a fortified city, doesn't it? But God says he's going to be making him more and more of a fortified city. How is that possible? Well, God is speaking in spiritual terms. God not only has something to say through Jeremiah, he has something to say to Jeremiah in the process. He is going to build Jeremiah up as a kind of fortified city. And by the time we reach the end of Jeremiah's prophecy, now at at the first occasion of the crisis in his life when his own family plots to murder him, very similar to what happens to Christ, he came to his own people and his own people rejected him. His own family family plots to murder him and he has a crisis. He he calls out to the Lord. And the Lord hears him and restores his soul. But when we get to the end of Jeremiah's ministry, he is thrown into prison by the most powerful man in Jerusalem, the man who has the power to simply give the word, and he's dead. And he is brought before Zedekiah, and Zedekiah says, is there any word from the Lord? What Zedekiah wants to hear is, yes, everything's going to be okay. Your kingdom's going to be fine. Hang in there. And if Jeremiah were to say those words, he'd be out of prison immediately. But he doesn't blink an eye. He says, if I tell you, you still won't believe me. 
And then he tells him, your kingdom's done. Just like that. So here we have, ostensibly, the most powerful, the strongest man in the land standing beside this aged prophet who's imprisoned, likely skin and bones at this point because there's no longer any bread in Jerusalem. Zedekiah, you know, is well-fed. And yet, what's really happening is this man is so fearful he can hardly contain himself. And Jeremiah is the one who's strong in the Lord. You see? It's all opposite. It's all backwards the way we would think about things with our natural minds. But the Lord builds up Jeremiah. And in that we see the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah is a suffering servant. But he is the strong one because God is with him. And the same is true for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God with us. The Spirit anointed him in his humanity without measure. And so though he stands before Pontius Pilate, who has the ability to put him to death in the most gruesome way you can possibly imagine. Yet Jesus holds firm. And he's actually the strong one. You see? And that's God's grace. I pray that grace for you and for me as we make our way through Jeremiah's prophecy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for time to study it together. We pray that you would indeed bless it to our hearts. Grant that it might be seed that falls into fertile soil and produces much fruit to your glory. Strengthen us, we pray, by your spirit and through your word. In Christ's name, amen.